Welcome to the Western Baal podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the podcasts is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Tantra and Ordinary Life. The talk was given by Mary Angelon Young on January 26, 2019 in Prescott, Arizona. Mary Angelon is author of As It Is, A Year on the Road with a Tantric Teacher, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar Under the Punai Tree, The Baal Tradition, Krishna's Heretic Lovers, a novel, Enlightened Duality, co-authored with Lee Lozowick, and other books. Originally trained in Jungian psychotherapy, she is a workshop leader and senior editor of Sahaja Magazine, a publication on Western Baal practice. Mary Angelon Young. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming for this consideration of Tantra in Ordinary Life. So this is not going to be the scholarly version. If you were hoping for a scholarly lecture, um, you probably won't get that tonight. But here we are in this august company of uh, Buddhas and Arhats and deities and uh, tantric, uh, tantric uh, mm, presence and being, and this is a great place to consider these kinds of principles together. So, you know, as we all know, over the last, mm, especially the last 30 years, but for the last 40 or 50 years, teachings from the East have come flooding into the West. And we as Westerners are doing the best we can to understand them and imbibe them and make use of them, but we often misunderstand, and Tantra is the most misunderstood of all of the teachings. So it's, it's, uh, it's been widely promulgated in the West as sort of a, uh, the, the fun and, and sexy form of, the, of spiritual practice, and actually it's far more rigorous and demanding than that, although it does embrace all aspects of life. So at the beginning, if I'm going to talk about Tantra, I feel um, responsibility to right away dispel the myth that Tantra is about sex and more sex and better sex and more orgasms and and like uh, 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 um, uh, unbridled sex with whoever you want to anytime you want to have it. So that was the late 60s and early 70s. That is not now, and that is definitely not Tantra, because Tantra involves discipline. And as, as a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Robert Svoboda, says, um, that in Tantra, we practice strong and powerful discipline in order to enjoy, because Tantra does have this dimension of enjoyment to it. But it's divine enjoyment, it's refined enjoyment, it's intentional enjoyment. So we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Um, I'm going to talk for a little while and then I'll open, open, uh, open the space up for questions and discussion and we'll see where that goes. Uh, but Tantra, I'm, I, I'd like to, to offer 
tonight um, here at the beginning a working definition of Tantra from the big perspective. So we could say that Tantra is the intentional cultivation or development of the potential for realization in created beings in relationship to the supreme reality. So that's a lot. That's a pretty short and simple sentence, but there's really a lot in there. It's the conscious and intentional cultivation and development of created being, that would be us, of created being, and created created beings potential for realization in relationship to the supreme reality. So this part in relationship to the supreme reality is what really locks in the context that we're talking about. Because the whole purpose of Tantra is to be in relationship with the divine. However we want to say that. So I'm going to refer to that with a capital T, many different ways tonight. And I, I ask you to please translate that as it works for you. So if I say supreme reality or the divine or God, and you prefer terms like ultimate reality or Jesus or truth or beauty, please feel free to translate what I'm saying because Tantra applies to, to everybody. Whatever your belief system is, you can use the principles of Tantra in your life to develop your, your being in relationship to that which is. So that's a, a really good working definition. But on a more specific and personal level, a, a working definition would be for us that when we practice Tantra, we garner and gather and focus our energies or our prawn, our fundamental life force, which comes in with the breath and circulates through the body and is all throughout the body, all throughout creation, prawn, prana in Sanskrit, um, that we, we garner and focus our prawn toward a specific aim. <clears throat> so a specific aim might be our health, for example, we might decide that we're going to practice certain disciplines to um, have more energy and to have more, more vital life force and, and greater health and well-being. So we know that that's going to require some discipline to do that, right? We're going to have to, of course, need to exercise. We'll need um, uh, a diet plan. We'll need some kind of intentional relationship to food. But we do that in many, many countless ways throughout the different arenas and, and areas in our lives where we're working. So it could be in our jobs, in our, with our children, in our committed relationships with mates, our marriages, with our lovers. Um, that's all probably the same thing, generally speaking. But um, it could be anywhere. It could be in our cooking. It could be in our creativity and our and our chosen art form, anywhere that we are active in life, we can be practicing these principles of Tantra. We can be gathering and focusing our energies toward an aim. So um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit more about what Tantra is. We've, we've discovered already that it is not about just uh, getting to have 
sex anytime with anybody as much as we want. Yeah. Although everybody's free to do that if we want to, you know, while we're adult, we're, we're consenting adults. So, in terms of the principles of Tantra, Tantra is um, a type of, is a perspective on life that that um, brings us into relationship with both the imminent aspect of God and the transcendent aspect of God. So Tantra is, is, um, is both working with Tantra, you're working both with non-duality and you're working with duality. And this is a theme that you'll hear me, we'll, we'll come back to again and again over the evening. But it's not, and you know, in many religious traditions, they're either, they're like Advaita Vedanta is a strictly non-dual tradition. In that tradition, they say, all of this is an illusion. None of it's real. Everything is actually, there's only one thing, non-duality. There is no duality. And everything you perceive is just an illusion. And the, the path is to pierce through that to get to a state of unity. There are other religious traditions that say, um, actually, they're theistic, and so there's there is duality because there's there are human beings, and then there's this divine, there's this theistic um, uh, approach to the divine. There's a personal God, or there is a, a deity of some kind, and we relate with that through this dualistic this life of of duality that that we have, and then there are those traditions that combine those two things, and that's Tantra. Anywhere you find that, the underpinnings, the principles of Tantra are alive in that tradition. And you can find it, you can find threads of this in esoteric Christianity, you can find it in Sufism, you can find it obviously in the Hindu tradition, and the Vajrayana tradition of Buddhism. And in fact, Tantra has been around for thousands of years. These principles of Tantra of learning how to gather and focus our energies, our prawn, toward an aim. This has been around forever, forever. Tribal people have known about this. They didn't call it tantra, of course. It's a Sanskrit word. They call it something else, the medicine way, or whatever they called it. But it's very important for us to, to recognize that, like the universality of tantric principles and tantric practice and the possibilities of that in our life, that medicine men and women, shamans, um, magicians, sorcerers, witches, uh, um, healers, leaders of all kinds, people have been using these principles forever, not just yogis and sadhus and tantrikas in India and Tibet. So everything making sense so far? Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm telling you things you all know already, so. I think it's useful to have a little bit of a, of a historical perspective. Um, you know, I was, I was looking at some of the, the history. Every now and then I'll go back and review, well, how did things develop in India? Because India really is the mother um, in many ways. And the Indian people themselves consider India, they call India uh, Mother Bharat or Mother India because India is considered to be the mother of the spiritual traditions of the world, actually. So the earliest known human beings, homo sapiens in India, go back 250,000 years. It's a really long time. And maybe longer than that if we listen to legend, if we believe legends. Or we don't have to believe them, but we just would be willing to consider legends like of Lemuria, 
the, the lost continent of Mu and, and places like this that were supposed to have existed even maybe 500,000 years ago on this planet. So this tantric tradition goes all the way back to the beginnings of time, 250,000 years ago, let's say, at least that, at least that long. It depends on the scholar that you read, but let's say around 8,000 years ago, the rishis, the, the shining ones, the, these divine beings who, who perceived the Vedas, they, they actually um, received the Vedas from the air, the rocks, the, 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 the rivers, the clouds, these teachings of the Vedas, and they brought them into this plane. Everybody know what the Vedas are? Okay, the Vedas are some of the oldest known um, oral tradition of spiritual teaching in the world. They're probably even older than the traditions of ancient Sumeria. Those traditions are five to 6,000 years old. The Vedic tradition is probably much older than that, six to 8,000 years old or older, depending on who you read. So about six to 8,000 years ago, the Vedas were brought into this world by these beings called the Rishis, human beings like us, but, but um, maybe not exactly like us because they were, uh, it's almost inconceivable what kind of culture, cultural milieu they lived in and living in forests and streams, the prim primeval and primordial purity of the earth at that time. It must have been just, just incredible, really Really incredible. The power, the Shakti power, the prawn, the life force. Um, things are different today. So they perceived these great teachings and they brought them through into this reality and they became oral traditions and they were passed down in oral tradition for thousands of years until they were written down. And so as India was developing, the Vedas, which the, the Vedas uh, were teaching everyone many different things, but one of the basic things about the Vedas is that they center around fire worship and sacrifice. And so the Vedas were telling everybody, only these priests, and the Vedas also um, um, were, the, were the vehicle in which the caste system was, was, um, uh, was developed, through which it was developed and widely, widely spread, and it became the cultural form and the spiritual form. Because in ancient India, there's no separation between culture and spirituality. It's all completely seamless, uh, sacred culture. So there, in, in the Vedic tradition, which, which ruled for thousands of years in India, people were... Um, People were at the effect of the priest caste because only the priests could mediate between human beings and the gods. And they did that through fire worship and fire sacrifice. So around somewhere in the 6th century BCE, Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha was born. And he was basically a reformer <coughs> because the people of, of, of India were... Um, you know, the caste system was firmly in place. You were either on the priest caste or warrior caste or merchant caste or the low caste, but you had your place in society and it was somewhat respected. Even if you were low caste, at least you had a place in society and you served a purpose. But nonetheless, the 
for if you weren't a priest, then you had to go through a priest and you had to go and pay. So if you've ever been to India, you know that that's still in place. If you want to go to India and go to the temple and see the deity, you have to get in line. And when you get up there, you have to pay the priest something. So Shakyamuni Buddha came along and he was a great, great, great reformer. And he said, we're going to do away with all of this human sacrifice and this animal sacrifice and this fire sacrifice and ritual. And I'm going to show you a way to go direct. I'm going to show you a way to realize the supreme reality and the nature of reality directly for yourself. So this, you know, was very, very attractive to people. So this, so there was a big, big influence of Buddhism in India um, from about 200, from about 400 BCE to 200 BCE. I asked, I know I said this isn't going to be a scholarly lecture. <laughs> I'm just giving you a few, I'm just going to give you a little broad sketch here because uh, I think it's useful for us to understand that these traditions that come out of India are vast. They, they, they have built on each other. Each tradition, as it's flowered, has built upon everything that came before. And the Vedas are at the very, the very foundation of all of it. The Vedas and the Tantric tradition, which was much more tribal, shamanistic. It was the people. People were practicing Tantric tradition. Not as we know it today, but the, the seeds of it, the ancient, the ancient forms of it. <clears throat> so Buddha came. He reformed everything. People became Buddhists. But then, you know, everything changes and it keeps rolling along and new realizers show up. They, people who study, who, who have a deep, deep yearning for God and they practice uh, whatever practices they, they, that come to them. Maybe it's meditation, maybe it's chanting, maybe it's japa practice, the name of God, maybe it's deep internal inquiry whatever they're practicing, and they have their own realization. And then they teach that. And if it really takes off, then it becomes the next layer of the religion, of, of, of the cake, you know, of religious, of, of religious uh, um, insight and realization and how that filters through into the culture and into ordinary people and how we function and, and relate with life on earth, the cosmos and each other. So let's see, generally, I'm going to skip over a little bit of time here. So we're, we, Buddhism reigns, and then uh, the, next, the next big thing that happens is that there's this great realizer. Some of us just saw a video about this man. His name is Shankara, Shankara, Adi Shankara, the first Shankara. He was the great uh, realizer of non-duality, and he... he um, he brought the people of India back to the ancient Vedic traditions, but with a new perspective on it. So it wasn't so much like fire ritual and fire sacrifice and, and all of these kinds of things that people were oppressed under, as you can understand. And he also was a non-dual realizer. But even his, and his, his tradition was very great, and it's still very, very active in India today. There are four Shankaracharyas teachers of Shankara, Shankaracharyas, Acharya means teacher, Shankara was his name. There are four of them in India, they're sort of like popes, they're like the Indian popes, and they come, they travel around with lots of pomp and circumstance, but they're really beautiful human beings, and they're dedicated to the spiritual path and to spirituality on this planet, 
on transformation for people and and um, and they're very compassionate and so on. So there's four of those, and so that continues to exist today. But on top of Shankara's Shankaracharya's teachings, the original one. Sooner or later, the pendulum swings again back from this non-dual. We were talking about this at the beginning, non-duality and duality happening at the same time. Not, oh, it's all non-duality. That's the purpose of why we're here. Or it's all duality. That's the purpose of why we're here. But both of them happening at the same time. So some hundreds of years after Shankaracharya came and he brought the people back into the ancient Indian traditions and brought respect for those back, Then there was this Renaissance, and very interestingly, it was happening pretty much at the same time the Renaissance was happening in Europe, around 1200 to 1400 current era. And this Renaissance was this beautiful flowering of bhakti, or devotional path tradition, which of course is very theistic, because in the bhakti tradition, there is a human being and there is a divine beloved whatever form that divine beloved might take for you. And there's a relationship and it's real. So in the midst of this flowering of the bhakti tradition, there were five different great saints of India who had very profound realizations. And some of them, like for example, I want to talk just very briefly about Ramanuja. He's probably my favorite of these five. But what I like about this this man's teachings is that he said, this world that we see here, he says, first of all, yes, there is oneness, there is unity, there is only one. Yes, non-duality, yes, we embrace that. And this world here is real. It's not unreal. It's not an illusion that we have to penetrate and slough to the side and and just go for for non-duality. This world is real. And there's beauty in this world and meaning. And we, we need to find out what that is. There's a possibility for us to be in relationship with this realm of duality in a way that is transformational for us. And not only for us, but for all of life. So I like these guys a lot. They're not tantricas per se. They're bhakti they're bhakti uh, tradition uh, saints, big saints. There's five of them, five schools, five major bhakti schools in India. Yes. So when you talk about the Vedas or something, where, where, where is it that the Vedas came from? The Vedas were, we would say in contemporary America that they were channeled, but that's not probably the best word, but I'll use that word just to help clarify. There were beings at this time, at this point in time, maybe eight to 10,000 years ago, who were very highly sensitive and highly realized beings. And they perceived this wisdom and they brought it through. Some say they, 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 they perceived it through the rocks and the river, through the current of the, of the water, through the waves crashing on the shore, through the sky, through the animals. So they they extracted it. They literally tapped it, and they brought it into this realm as an oral tradition. They started orally speaking these teachings. So the Rig Veda begins with the instruction. The Rig Veda tells us um, to contemplate the nature of the sky if we want to know the nature of our own being. So... In this flowering of the bhakti tradition, 
and these, these great realizers who were giving us a bigger possibility of spiritual life and what the spiritual path could be about. But something very, very precious happened in that. And these kinds of traditions all along the way were merging and relating with really ancient tantric traditions, those sadhus that were off the map, marginal, unwilling to, to play by whatever, you know, cultural or religious rules, because India's had plenty of those cultural and religious rules and regulations. And um, many of these kinds of people existed, and they lived out in the forests, and they were interacting with these different schools. So Ramanuja had one school, uh, Madhva had another school of thought, Adi Shankara is another school, it's Advaita Vedanta, it's non-dual. All of these, you know, somewhere along the way in the in the back in the forest where the actual sadhus and sadhvis, the men and women yogis were practicing, they were all melting together and exploring all of these things. And the tantric tradition was underlying all of that because it's essentially shamanistic, because it's very, very ancient. Since the, that time period of, um, well, actually right before that, let me go to just back a little bit. I was talking about the 12th to 14th centuries. About 800 years before that, there was a flowering of tantric tradition in Kashmir amongst the, the Shiva worshipers, the worshipers of Shiva. And this tradition is still alive today, along with many others. There are countless, countless different schools of tantric practice in India. But all of them have at, at, uh, at their base this principle that this world is real and we can realize through this world. They have at their base this intersection, this interplay between non-duality and duality, between Shiva, we could say, the god Shiva, and his goddess Shakti. Because the tantrikas perceive the, the world as being the non-dual, the absolute, the, the contextual uh, basis of everything being comparable to the masculine principle. And the act, and it's passive, it just is. And the active a creative force, the Shakti, is the feminine principle. From a tantric perspective, the masculine does nothing. The feminine does everything. But they coexist, and they cannot exist without each other. They are co-emergent. In tantra, they are co-emergent. It's not like uh, God the Father existed first, and he gave birth to God the Mother. It's not like that. They both happen at the same time. This is very, very essential tantric understanding and very different than many other traditions. Does that make sense to you guys? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the other, some, some of the basic principles of tantra and then, and then uh, are the basic practices of Tantra, actually, and then get into what is it, you know, how, what about ordinary life? And what does this mean to us as Americans? How can we make use of this information? Is it useful at all, in fact? So Tantra does involve ritual practice, but not uh, necessarily. It depends. If you live in Calcutta and you're going to the Kali Ghat Temple, you're going to see goats sacrificed regularly on a daily basis. So there are still blood sacrifices being made to the Devi. 
Because a lot of, of traditional tantricas worship the goddess. But many of many tantricas understand that she doesn't really need blood, that she doesn't necessarily have to have blood, that she's pretty happy with, with uh, other things like flowers, for example, or incense. <laughs> but what really makes her happy, of course, is, is worship. It's when we, it's when human being aligns themselves to dharma, to truth, and uh, lives in this way. This is, this is the real sacrifice and the real oblation to the Devi. But so this idea of worship and, and specifically worship of a female deity is very essential to tantric and tantricas everywhere, tantric practice and tantricas. Um, and that and that leads into the idea of an ishta devata. Ishta devata is a Sanskrit term that means chosen deity. So if you're a tantric practitioner, you have a chosen deity, some deity, some idea or some concept or some image or some feeling about the divine that speaks to you personally. And maybe you find that that's embodied in the Buddha, or maybe you find that it's embodied in Krishna, who there, there's lots of Krishnas in this in this place. Or, but back to Ishta Devata. So an Ishta Devata is that which speaks deeply to you, what moves your heart. So here's the, one of the first places where we can then begin to recognize that there might be something in tantric practice that could be useful to us in ordinary life. I want to talk a little bit about something I saw this week that really, really inspired me. I was watching a, I was watching a, a documentary. Um, it was a teaching given by Llewellyn Von Lee, a Sufi teacher. And of course, the Sufis have a very deep and profound mystical relationship to personal beloved. And he was speaking about that and from this context. And he was he said that that the Sufis say that when human beings are born, that we have only two instincts that we bring in with us. Everything else is what happens to us while we're here. It's all a story that happens to us while we're here. But two things that we bring in with us that are real, that are absolutely foundation. And the first one is our will to survive. And the second one is our desire to worship. And he was talking about this very big issue that we as contemporary Westerners or contemporary human beings on planet Earth have to grapple with, which is how do we know what's real now? This is a really essential kind of question for Tantra because Tantra deals with what is real. What is real? The earth is real. The clouds are real. The sky is real. This birth of this baby is real. This death is real. So he was posing the question, how do we know what is real? How are we going to know what is real? And he was saying, he was saying that that if we he's first of all, he was talking about how the re, the reason why, one of the reasons why this question is so, so essential for us now is because as time has gone on and with the onset of technology and with the onset of all of the, the kind of marketing, um, uh, constant bombardment of marketing images onto our psyche and our souls, day in and day out about everything, including spirituality, the gross materialism that's that's involved with all of that, that we don't know what's real anymore. 
did somebody plant that idea in our head? Did we pick that up through we associated because we saw it somewhere along the way today? And he said, reality has become more and more and more distorted because of what's going on in the world. He says that even the inner planes have become distorted, that you can't separate what's happening on this in this world, on this, in this realm, that it's all connected. So of course, as above, so below, and as below, so above. And he said, even, even for the mystic, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this real? Or did I pick, is this somebody else's thought? Is this my thought? Did I pick this up from the collective unconscious? Did, I, did some marketing blurb affect me? He says, this distortion upon distortion upon distortion, it's like a hall of mirrors, actually. You know, the, the, um, the effect of what's going on for us globally on this planet. And so he was saying this necessity to be able to answer for ourselves the question and keep going back to it, what is real for me? This is essential tantra. And here's the Sufi, this Sufi mystic talking about it. This is a, this is a seed of tantra right there. And this is very important for us in our ordinary lives today. So his, his suggestion and his recommendation was when things get so far out of control and we feel lost and we don't know what is real anymore in this moment, that we go back to the two essential. We actually go back to the essential, essential impulses that we have. We go back to the impulse to worship. I mean, survival, yes, so we want to keep living. We have an intention to stay alive. That's understood. But we go back to the impulse to worship. And that connects us to what is real, to worship reality as it is, to worship the divine, to worship the supreme reality. If we keep returning to that, then we will continue to be able to clear something for ourselves. It helps, it clarifies, it purifies, it, it uh, reestablishes us in the origins of our own being, this idea of, of worship. And perhaps the, the term worship isn't your favorite term. Maybe you like other terms like gratitude or adoration um, or resonance with truth or however, however, it works for you, but this idea of going back to what is pure and true and real and holy and sacred, going back to that, that's how we will know what's real. Anybody have any questions? There are essential principles that run like threads through all of this because it's our human nature we naturally know, we, we know we resonate to these, um, they're archetypal, actually, is the right word. They're archetypal, and so they're, they're true to collective humanity. They just show up in different ways, in different times and in different cultures. They show up through different myths, different teachings, different images, but the archetype is the same. Well, that, that, is, the, the, that is what I'm talking about. It's the collective unconscious. We're all connected. We're all connected, and it's archetypal, meaning it's a primordial idea that 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 informs humanity, like the archetype of the mystic or the archetype of the mother, the archetype of the father, mother, father. These are 
primordial. They're not only human experiences, but they're symbolic. And all human beings are relating with that, with those aspects of the human, the dimensions of the human experience, our common human experience. So of course, yes, we're really all the same. Yeah. It just shows up, it, 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 it is, it's different from culture to culture, but the underlying reality of it is the same. Yeah, does Tantra embrace at all the concept of the yugas? Are you familiar with those? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, is that part of there? Oh, yeah. Well, everything, you know, in India, it all, it's like this woven, incredibly rich tapestry, which is part of why it was saying to you, oh, and there's a Shankaracharya who had this realization, and then there are these other saints who had these over time. All that gets woven into this, tapestry that is the Indian traditions. And the tantrikas are partaking of all of that. Because in tantra, nothing is left out, which is one of the reasons why tantra got the reputation of being, oh, okay, it's about sex. Because yes, sex can be very much a part of our spiritual practice and our spiritual life, definitely. In, in tantra, tantra is about continuity. It's about the continuity of our awareness moment to moment. It's about bringing that awareness into everything that we do. You, you mentioned that in the Shakti Shiva that uh, the male principle was passive and the female principle was active. And in my limited understanding mm-hmm. of uh, the tree of life, it's the reverse of that. And so that kind of confused me a little. I was just wondering if I don't know if... In the Tree of Life, do you mean Kabbalah? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, they on the tree, it has the male principle as being the active principle and the female as being passive. But from the female, all form emerges. And I don't know if that correlates with this or if I need to keep them... Oh, that's kind of a, you know... Um, <laughs> um, Okay. In Tibetan Buddhism, the uh, male principle is the principle of compassion, and the female principle <coughs> is the is the principle of 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 uh, wrath. Same on the tree. So you know, it in a way it doesn't matter. It's just two different principles. It's like the yin yin yang. You know, this yeah. is their, their objective. It doesn't matter. One of them's dark. One of them's light. But they partake of each other. And they're completely connected. They're part of a whole. It's that principle. So okay. in a way, it doesn't matter. We can look at it like that. Yeah, I can get that. Yeah. It's still the same dynamic. Yes. So. Okay. Thank okay. you. Anybody else? Actually, um, since you brought up the Tibetan aspect, <clears throat> um, it's a deity practice mm-hmm. of becoming a deity. <clears throat> I don't mean becoming a deity, but... Be, ac, ac, acquiring the characteristics of a deity. Yeah, this is a really good example of, of, um, of what I was saying about um, Tantra being the cultivation or development of the potentials for realization within us. Because all of these potentials, like every image that you see in this room, from the perspective of Tantra, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist Tantra, this is all you. All this, everything in there 
It all exists in you. It's not separate out there somewhere, although it does exist out there also. But the idea in Tantra through worshiping an Ishta Devata, a chosen deity, is that we cultivate with we become to we come to resonate with that archetype that the image represents. And through our meditation on that and our worship, our meditation on that image and that deity and our our um our worship of, of the deity, we develop in ourselves the qualities that the deity possesses. And this is very essential Tantra. So yeah, it's a great example of it. And it's the same in Hindu Tantra, yes. exactly the same. And really it's the same in, in Christianity, in esoteric Christianity, if I may be so bold as to say so, Regina can tell me if I'm wrong. But what I understand is that if you're worshiping Jesus Christ, that at some point in your spiritual practice, you will have to also get on the cross. You have to bear your own cross. You have to harrow hell in the same way that Jesus did. You have to go through, you know, in Christianity, especially in, in Europe, you see a lot of this in the cathedrals. They have the stations of the cross, beautiful depictions of these uh, different aspects of the spiritual process symbols of the spiritual process. And you walk along, along a, a pilgrimage trail and e- each one of these, whatever is happening, you meditate deeply on this state that Jesus was in and you come to that in yourself. You relate to it in your own life and in your own being. And in the process, go through the transformation that Jesus went through. So this is tantric principle. This, this is the essence of Tantra. And this can be very practical for us. And even if we just decide, I would like to cultivate in myself the quality of gratitude. I would like to cultivate in myself a quality of humility. My spiritual teacher used to say that, um, that humility is the most rare of all spiritual qualities and almost nobody has it. And it's definitely as Americans especially as Americans, but as Westerners in general, arrogance tends to be, you know, it's like kind of our first front of defense. And really it's just a defense mechanism, but it's very effective. The quote basically said, it's from a Petrol Rinpoche, and he says that a person who is arrogant is like an iron ball who cannot absorb the nectar of divine qualities. Cannot not will not, cannot. An arrogant person is like an iron ball who cannot absorb the nectar of divine qualities. Because the spiritual path is about cultivating and developing those qualities in ourselves. Compassion, gratitude, generosity, kindness. And so in Tantra, we, we choose a deity, or it chooses us, depending on how you want to look at that whatever our heart's open to, you know? It's that which opens the heart. And that that being has these gorgeous qualities, these wonderful, luminous, self-generating um, qualities. And we begin to develop those in ourselves through our relationship with that. Tantra tells us that actually what is happening here is real. Not our story about it, not our attitude about it, not our opinion about it, 
that's not necessarily real, but the but what it is, what is here and now, that's what's real. What is here and now is what's real. So in Tantra, we work in one of the, the little um, secrets of Tantra is that there are particularly powerful places where we can practice, places or times when we can practice, whether we meditate or we pray, we want to chant the name of God or we, whatever it is that we do for a spiritual contemplative practice, particular places and times. And those are what are called in-between places and times, in-between the pairs of opposites. So in-between night and day, dusk and dawn, most powerful times to practice. Or at the seashore, right where the waves come to the water, or at the where the water, at, right at the river's edge, for example. That these are very, very, very powerful places uh, to practice in relationship, obviously, with nature. Um, so these in, this in-between principle... Um, It's not this and it's not that. There's something very, very powerful about the in-between. So I I like this. I like this very much because uh, I was trained in, uh, originally trained in in, uh, the principles of Jungian um, philosophy and Jungian psychotherapy. And and in Jungian philosophy and, and psychotherapy, we work with the opposites. And one of the things that we do is that we learn to work with shadow, the shadow and the and the persona, those two aspects of ourselves. And we're the, the process is one of getting to the deeper self, obviously. Does everybody know what the shadow is? Or can you get a sense of that? The shadow is like that part of us, everything that we repress and deny that we don't know about ourselves. The shadow can be very dark and gnarly, or it can be very bright and beautiful, and we're denying that too. It's not necessarily just all the bad things about ourselves, our selfishness and our greed and our judgment and our, you know, we've all got those things and we have to work with them on the spiritual path. We must work with those things. We must bring them to light. So spiritual practice does that, um, and it there, there are many areas in our life where we're struggling between these pairs of opposites. We're struggling between everything we think that's good about ourselves and everything that we think is bad. Or we're struggling with, with should I, oh, should I do this or should I do that? So in, in Tantra, Tantra might say to you, go to the, stay in the tension between those two opposites because it's there in between the two that something can happen for you, something completely unexpected. If you, instead of, I don't want to deal with any of this. I'm just going to shove it away. I don't want to deal with it. Um, I'll just be good. I'm not going to be bad. This isn't saying we should, we should uh, act on our negative impulses at all. It's saying within ourselves, we stay in the tension between those pairs of opposites. And it's there in the heat and the friction and the inner being worked inside, that some kind of alchemy occurs and something completely new and different can show up for us. Some third thing, which is unknown, unexpected, a total surprise can show up. Mandorla principle. Two things, pair of opposites, they overlap, and here's the in-between, the middle here. 
And this, you'll, this, this is a, this is an ancient, ancient symbol. It's called the, actually called the Vesica Pisces. Pisces. And it's a goddess symbol, as you can see, the, the yoni, the female symbol in the middle, you know, the vulva-like symbol. Um, so this is, this is a, a great example of how these tantric principles show up in unexpected places. This is out of the Christian tradition. Anybody ever seen this before? Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah. So you can ask yourself, what's the dynamic tension in my life? I've got to make this very big decision, and there's this side of it, and there's this side of it, and it could be either way. Where's the dynamic tension in your life? Because that's a very rich place to practice and to, to, to watch ourselves and to see what's coming up all across the spectrum and to not, and to not repress and deny those things. How's everybody doing? Anybody have a question or a consideration or some thought about how you're actually practicing Tantra and you didn't know that you were <laughs> in your daily life? Or maybe you already knew that you were. How, how, how does the word holistic fit in? It seems to me to be how I would apply it to my life. Well, it definitely fits in because holistic is whole. And Tantra is the whole of everything. It's all-inclusive. It's, it's the, uh, nothing is excluded. Everything can be used for spiritual practice. So <clears throat> Tantra also has this kind of mandala principle, which is a great image of holistic, holistic health, for example. You look at the whole person. You don't just look at the symptom and the physical disease. You look at the emotions, the psyche, the psychology, the mind, how the mind is. This holistic approach, that's a mandala approach, actually, to life. So that everything is everything is taken in. To well, even account. a medicine wheel would, would. Medicine wheel is definitely a mandala. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yes. What are the main um, trainings? The main practices of tantra. The main practices of tantra are worship of an ishta devata, usually chanting and repeating the name of God. Certainly meditation, all kinds of disciplines, all kinds of disciplines. Um, you know, for, for most tantricas, practice hatha <coughs> yoga, for example. And traditionally, whether they're baul or, or um, a gori or, or any one of a number of the tantric sects in India, they're nath siddhas, they all practice hatha yoga, they practice meditation, they practice chanting the name of God, they do japa Mala, they, they, they have a mantra. They, mantra practice is very essential to tantric practice. So, and there are many different mantras. It depends on the school and the teacher and that kind of thing. In the midst of all of this, whatever our spiritual practices are, tantra is about the cultivation of awareness and becoming aware of our awareness. And the more aware we are of our awareness, the more present we are here and now the more we are available, the more our life force is available. And we all know how locked up we get when we're focused on the past or worrying about what happened or I shouldn't, shouldn't have done this or I did that and it was terrible or, or they did that to me and it was terrible or 
and then this is going to happen in the future, and I'm scared about that. I'm freaked out about, you know, all this kind of the things that the mind does, and it will continue to do. It's probably not going to stop for most of us, this activity of the mind. But beginning to cultivate our awareness, the, the awareness of our awareness, we can come more into the present moment and just let go. A huge amount of spiritual practice is letting go. Huge, huge amount. Just letting go in the moment. Okay, my mind's going crazy. <coughs> Breathe. So that, that brings me to another really essential tantric practice, which is the practice of working with breath, pranayama. Pranayama, there are many forms of pranayama. Some of it's very intense, and it can lead to altered states of consciousness, and it can lead, in fact, to breakthroughs of a very powerful emergence of um, kundalini openings, kundalini, the basic life force. It can also lead to psychosis and things like that and, and very deep disturbances that because we just, we, we open things up too fast. We take things into our own hands and go, I'm going to progress on the spiritual path. I'm going to do this pranayama practice. And the next thing we know, we're it's out of control. We've just opened up our channels too fast, too much. This is very serious and important to, to consider. So what we can do as practitioners is we can just remember to breathe. We can start there because most of us, we're all holding our breath. Anybody in here aware that you, that you hold your breath a lot? <laughs> like off and on all day, maybe even most of the time. You know, the fight or flight um, syndrome, because we're constantly feeling threatened. With, because remember, we have these two fundal prime, primal uh, imperatives. The first one is to survive, and the second one is to worship. So we're always worried about survival, always. It's just an underlying hum all the time. And sometimes it flares up and just takes us over completely, and we're in the grip of it. Uh, you know, unreasonable uh, um, uh, fears, you know, arise. Anybody in here ever deal with any fear? <laughs> just for no reason. Just afraid for no reason. This is good because we get to look at that, you know, we get to be with it. Okay, fear, you know, it just comes through. Um, what was I talking about? Breath. Breath, thank you. That was it. I knew I was on something really important. So if we just work with our breathing, and this is a fundamental teaching of Tantra, we keep returning to our breath. The breath is the most direct connection that we have to our primordial awareness, just pure awareness. Just the breath. The breath is real. Breath is real. And it is given to us, our first breath that we take when we incarnate into this life, when we have the will to, the will to survive, the will to worship, and the will to breathe, the automatic given gift. It's not even a willful thing. It's a gift of God, breath, just given to us. Here's, here's the gift. You're going to breathe now. This is a gift. So the breath is the most basic way that we can that we can practice Tantra is to pay attention to our breath and just breathe normally, naturally, easily. Don't try to count your breaths. Don't like put any technique on it. Just keep breathing. Really simple. The path that I'm that I've that I've been on for many years is called Bowel Path, and 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 it's 
one of its fundamental <coughs> underlying principles is sahaja, which is the natural, easy, easy way. That doesn't mean it's easy to do. It means it's easeful. It means it's natural in that this is innately given to you. The breath is innately given to you. Wisdom is innately given to you. But how will we discover it? How will we find it? This is, this is, this is tantric. This is a tantric principle. You already have everything. I have everything I need. I forget every day. Oh yeah, I have everything I need. But so why am I so afraid and 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 tied up in knots and and you know um, unsure of myself and so on? Well, I'll just keep breathing. So really, I know this sounds like overly simplified, but it is very simple. But it's not easy to keep breathing. This is ordinary life. This is Tantra in ordinary life. And the more we breathe, the more we oxygenate our bodies, the more prawn we bring into our bodies, and the more we have access to our awareness in the moment. It's true that, that, that everything is empty. You know, as the Buddhists say, a form is empty, and the Buddhists also say emptiness is form. It's true that it's all empty, and at the same time, from the tantric perspective, this is real. That means I'm real. I am real. And I can pursue, per, perceive the luminous nature of reality and the, the beauty of reality. We could just say the beauty of reality. The luminous nature of reality sounds like some mystical thing that, wow, is that going to really happen? In the Baal tradition, we talk about direct experience, direct immediate experience, here and now, not somewhere else, some other time, not I'm sort of here listening to you, but I'm really me. I'm thinking about my list of things I have to do. Do you guys do this sort of thing? You're thinking about something else while your friend is telling you their important thing? (laughs) Or, or, or is my attention completely 100% with, with them? Or whatever it is that's in front of me right now, or with me, or maybe it's just me by myself. Maybe it's just me contemplating the nature of the sky in the morning, as the Vedas instruct us to do. We were talking about that. The Rig Veda instruct, instructs us, first of all, to contemplate the nature of the sky. Continuing to open, just to be open, keep opening up. Keep opening the heart. And that does not mean that we um, are just like a, a, you know, blathering, um, say everything we think and we have no appropriate boundaries and so on and so forth. I'm talking about opening of the heart. That's internal. Maybe nobody knows. Nobody has any idea what's what men, and that's good. Not that it's a secret or that we're withholding. I'm not talking about withholding ourselves, but that we have appropriate boundaries. We just have wise, mature, basic sanity about such things as opening and opening the heart in relationship to the rest of life. So that it's the amplification of awareness. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is, you know, I, I guess I would ask if you would say something about the reputation that the Tantra has of being like uh, more extreme. I mean, you know, the images that come to my mind, are, you know, from the East are like people meditating in um, uh, grounds and on corpses and, 
it, it, you know, things like that. There's a right hand, as I understand it, there's a right-handed path and a left-handed path. Would you say something about that? Yes, I can say something about that. Um, uh, but in relationship to the amplification of awareness, well, we've already said that Tantra is about cultivating and developing ourselves. So probably that's going to involve some amplifying. So things are going to get bigger. The heart's going to get bigger. We're going to get bigger in our ability to perceive and relate with reality as it is. So things are going to amplify. But in such extreme spiritual practices as what you're talking about, um, sitting on the smashan, sitting at the cremation grounds on corpses, or even just sitting at the cremation ground, if you've ever been to one and watched a body burning, this is a powerful meditation. I can't imagine sitting on one before it's burned. This is like way, way over the edge for me. It would be too much for me. It would be way too amplified for me. <laughs> but... Um, but many yogis have done this. They, the agora, the agoris do this. This is part of their practice: is to sit on corpses and meditate. But there's a specific purpose for this. It's not just some wild pagan, tripped out ritual. There's a specific purpose, and it has to do with with piercing through our fears of death. That's what it's about. Because um, we are afraid of death. Everybody, even Indians and even Hindus and Buddhists are afraid of death. Everybody's afraid of death because we don't know what's the great, it's the great unknown. We don't know what's there. Um, so this right hand and left hand Tantra, right hand Tantra refers to those aspects of Tantra in which the practices, the practice of, of um, for example, um, sexual union, the yo- sexual yogas in right hand practice, they're all done through visualization. They're done through the inner world. So one imagines, one one, uh, visualizes the deity and um, let's say Radha and Krishna. Here's Radha, right over there. This, this, This one right here, the little wooden statue, that's Queen Radha. Radha and Krishna. Krishna is God, Radha is the devotee. And in the in the Vaishnava myth and in, in tantric Vaishnava practice, um, they're in union. They're lovers. They're divine lovers. And so the practice for uh, Baul or Sahajiya Tantrika might be to visualize the union of Radha and Krishna in here. It's all visualized. It's all internal. It's not actually happening. Um, if it was a left-hand practice, it would not be just visualized internally. You would actually be, the, the practitioner would enter into the role of Radha if she was a woman. If she was a man, she'd be Krishna, probably. Uh, or maybe she'd be Radha. If you're a Baal, the, the male practitioners are, take the female role. Or, uh, or all Everyone is Radha. All human beings are Radha in relationship to Krishna. And that union happens with another human being who's also practicing with you. So this is, this, this is, there is such a thing as tantric sexual yoga. This is a very real thing. It's been passed down for thousands of years. Um, and that would be the left hand side Why would of the path. that be considered the left-handed path? I don't know. It's just a convention of language, really. Okay. The left hand is always a little bit more dangerous and scary, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Kind of for us and our 
Western way of thinking. Because, you know, they used to do these things to children. If you were a left-handed child, that they would, uh, sometimes they would tie the child's hand behind their back and force them to use their right hand because in Western culture, everything's got to be right-handed. I know we've got some lefties in the room. It's terrible. There's some oppression around that. Right-handed, everything's got to be right-handed. And there's a reason why, because the right hand is controlled by the left brain, and the left brain is the masculine, rational, mm-hmm. rational linear function, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The right hand, the right side is controlled by the left brain, and it's the intuitive, artistic, skip-step reasoning and all this kind of thing. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. It is a dangerous path. It's a dangerous path because of this amplification thing. <laughs> it, it, this, this thing about amplification is that the deeper you get into becoming aware of your awareness and worshiping uh, and, and doing all of these intensification practices, and the more you're cultivating and intensifying and, and, and seeking to speed up your own evolution, anytime we take things into our own hands instead of waiting for the will of God or goddess, to do it for us through the evolutionary process, the long, slow, hundreds of thousands of lifetimes of suffering that it's going to take. Anytime we take it into our own hands instead of doing that, it's going to be dangerous because we could we could mess it up. We could make some big mistakes. We could open it too fast, as I was saying with pranayama or with hatha yoga or any kind of very serious uh, alchemical and, and really empow- powerful, powerful technique. We're applying science to our own evolutionary process. And so it is dangerous because we are the one who's deciding to do that, supposedly. From one view, we could look at it that, okay, I've decided I'm going to do this. I'm going to speed up my process because this isn't going fast enough for me. <laughs> Um, I was mentioning Dr. Savota. He's 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 a, a, an Agori Tantrika as well as an Ayurvedic physician, and and a number of us know him well. He's he's a fabulous um, teacher in many ways. Um, but he says that his his mentor Vimalananda used to say that if you um, If you wait for what the goddess wants to give you and you wait patiently and you open your heart and say, thy will be done, then she gives you milk and honey. If you say, I'd really like to have it this way if that will work for you, then she gives you water. But if you say, I'm going to make this happen, then you get blood. <laughs> That's enough to sober us up, isn't it? <laughs> yes. There's a whole uh, network, and it came out of California. It's still around. It's called the Spiritual Emergency Network, and it is for people who have blown themselves out on acid and and you know psychedelic ayahuasca or or too much pranayama or 
maybe they just had some kind of random freak kundalini opening and now there's energy flowing through their body at such an amplified and a wild rate that they just can't function. They're unable to function. People go into divine madness. My Mahaguru Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, he, um, he repeated the mantra that his guru gave to him, Om Shri Ram, Jai Ram, Jai Jai Ram, for one week, and he went into a state of divine madness. And he was able to integrate it, but it took him years and years and years to integrate the a spiritual opening that occurred for him. And at one point, he was thrown into a mental institution, and this was in India in the, in the early 50s. And now he was so lost in a state of divine madness that at one point he was going to get on a train and the train was coming and he put his foot on the train track and he went into this bath, this divine state. He was in a state of divine madness and he, and he, because normally he would have like moved back when the train got close and he didn't. And the train ran over his foot and cut off the end of his big toe. And they took him to the hospital and they put him, I think it's, I don't know if it was at that point, but at some point he was in the mental institution because they thought he was crazy. And he had to convince them that he actually was sane, that he was in this spiritual process, which he did. And he, of course, he was released. But he went through many, many years of, of uh, wandering and, and, and very intense sadhana before he was able to begin to ground some of that divine madness and the incredible energies that were flowing through him because once we, you know, Tantra is the meeting of heaven and earth. Back to those pairs of opposites and the, the middle ground in between. It's the meeting between heaven and earth. And when heaven and earth meet, there's this, there's this uh, opening. There's a spiritual opening that occurs that, that through, through that opening, the divine energies, the raw power of the divine comes. And if we're not prepared to be able to deal with that energy, we can go mad, we can go into psychosis, or we can just be lost for a very long time. So it's always said in the tantric traditions, first of all, that you want to practice tantra with the help of a teacher, a qualified teacher. And secondly, that you prepare yourself, you ground yourself through daily practice through right diet, through taking care of your relationship with food, taking care of your body, doing the practice like, you know, uh, we were mentioning Hatha yoga a few times, but, but uh, reasonable, reasonable, uh, the, kinds of, the kinds of attending to the human vehicle on all of its levels that's, that's mature and wise and that creates, it's like a... Um, it creates a container, a strong container, like an inner matrix that can hold that kind of charge of energy. I want to say just a few things about Tantra and ordinary life in terms of our relationship with nature. Because in the Tantric tradition, the relationship, a conscious relationship with the five elements is of supreme importance because it's one of those things that grounds us in reality as it is. Whenever we're relating with nature in a just direct, just fire, earth, air, water, we're we're relating with the elemental world, and it's very pure. It's like pure, enlightened, 
awareness in the form of fire, in the form of water, in the form of air, earth, and space. So in the Indian tradition and the tantric tradition, there are five elements, not four. Space, air, fire, water, and earth. And space is the mother element. All the other elements come out of space. The, the, tantric, the tantrics say, get into relationship with the five elements. If you can only get into relationship with one of them, if you have one that's particularly resonant to you, then get in relationship with that one. But many, many tantricas, they have a fire, a duni fire, and they keep that fire burning all the time. The yogis and sadhus, they keep the fire burning all the time. They're in relationship with that fire. And the way that they manage the fire has everything to do with their state of mind. So if the fire goes out or it's not attended to or it's just this big mess, a pile of wood, that's the state of their mind. But if the fire is just this pure burning flame and just when it needs the next piece of fuel, the yogi places on the fire and contemplates the nature of fire. There's tremendous power in this, tremendous power. The same can be said of being in relationship with the water element or the earth element or the air element. Space is particularly dear to me these last few years. It wasn't always. I couldn't even relate with it. And then I, I asked uh, someone wise once. I said, I, I'm having a lot of fear come up. What do you do when you're having fear come up? And this person said, well, if you relate with space around you, this was a friend of mine, relate with space around you, um, and, and you relate with, you look and you see the tree over there, the wall, the tree, the sky, the stars. It was at night, the stars. And you relate to the space that all of that is taking place in. You will feel connected to life and your fears will dissipate. This is, a, this is something that you can just play with. You can experiment with and see what it does for you to relate to space. So right now we're sitting in space, right? Space is the mother element. It's the womb of the mother. I'm so sorry I didn't get to all my, my stuff on the Debbie, but I think maybe next talk I'll do on the divine feminine and the Debbie and the greening power and veriditas and all that. Um, the reason why I started thinking about that is because space is the womb of the mother. Space is the akasha. It's the element out of which everything else is born. So each one of these five elements is related to one of our five senses. The space element is related to hearing. Music, sound, the word. It's all happening in space. This, whatever it is I'm saying is happening in space actually out here and we're connected through space we're not separate we're actually here together through in space the space is a magical magical element and of course you can we live in the land of vast space vast sky we can contemplate the nature of the sky uh, forever we have such a wonderful place to contemplate the nature of sky and the nature of space The element, I'm going to keep going through the elements here. We're about to, to end. Um, just to give you a, a little bit more on this subject, just if it interests you, take it and use it and, 
and look into it for yourself. Investigate it some more. The next element is the element of air. Um, water is the sense of taste. Space is the sense of hearing. Air is the sense of, earth is the sense of smell. Fire is vision and seeing. And so air is smell. Thank you. Incense. Smell. So part of how we can relate to the five elements is through those five senses. And you can find more information about this if this interests you. But I know for myself that I have found that when I've been having the most struggles in my life, if I turn to the essentials of what is real and nature is a sure, sure connecting point for me. The beauty of nature, the, the raw simplicity, the truth of nature. Nature doesn't lie to us. Nature does not lie. It does not trick us. It does not distort reality. It is what it is. Whether it's a forest fire or a rainbow. So I recommend that you look into this, these possibilities of contemplations on the five elements as a part of Tantra in ordinary life because it's something that we can do. It's not, a, it's not something that we can, um, that we could overdo. You know, in the way that, that, that I was just talking about, the, as Vijay was wanting to hear about the danger of the tantric path. Well, contemplating the five elements is not so dangerous. That's something we can do in ordinary life. 